Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston. Our co-host, Charles Thompson, is not here today, but I am joined by author Alexandra Hudson. We'll be talking about her new book. It's called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles that Heal Society and Ourselves. How are you doing today, Alexandra? I'm great, Nate. Thanks for having me. As we were just talking, you're traveling right now. You pulled over so you could talk to us. You're currently on a book tour. So if anyone hears any background noise or whatever, that's what's happening. I, I recommend you watch the video of those. You can see all the beautiful scenery uh, behind you out there. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to, uh, I, I wanted to um, talk about this. And, and just so you know, I guess everyone who's listening will find this out. But I, this sounds like a good episode for us to release on or around Thanksgiving. So we're, we're not going to release it immediately today, but I think around Thanksgiving, you know, talking about being thankful and kindness and all that, maybe that's the time that this should be uh, released. But tell everyone a little bit about yourself and about your book. So uh, my name is Alexandra Hudson. I am passionate about beauty, goodness, and truth and reviving the wisdom of the past to help us better lives today. And that's very much the ethos of our book, reviving the, the timeless principles human flourishing, how thoughtful people how to do this thing called life together across deep difference. How might we thrive across deep difference? That is the most important question of our day. That's the question my book explores. This is a defining question of the classical liberal project of, of a democracy. How do we overcome the worst parts of our nature, our self-love, and thrive in community and relationship with others? As I learned while writing this book, though, this is actually the defining human question. How do we, how do we, how do we, you know, contribute to this, the, the human social project and, and become our best selves and um, accomplish more together in, in community than, than individually? And um, I learned firsthand the importance of this topic of our, of our divided moment when I was working in government. I was at the U.S. Department of Education in a very divided moment, 2017 to 2018, and left deeply divided uh, after a deeply divided uh, moment and a very discouraging experience and desperately wanted to be a part of the solution is kind of the origin story of this book. I was in this environment of anti-human flourishing. And so I wrote a book on, on the timeless principles of human flourishing as a result of that. So speaking on uh, civility, I definitely think that's something we're lacking these days. You know, something just happened a couple, a couple days ago at the time that we're recording this where we almost had a fight break out during a, a Senate hearing, you know. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of, I, I feel guilty about it, but I kind of wanted to see it play out. So maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm part of the problem. Uh, but Well, it's, it's funny. It wouldn't be the first time that violence broke out in the House of, uh, on, the, on the floors of Congress. Uh, in fact, in, um, in the 1890s, there was um, a murder on the steps of, ca of, of the Capitol. There is this uh, Congress person, uh, Tolby, uh, William Tolby. He had been exposed by a journalist for his extramarital affair. Um, a, a, a guy named Charles Kincaid had, um, had written about this affair. And he resigned in disgrace. His political career was over. And Tolby, the congressman, after he was resigned, he... he stalked and bullied the journalist Charles Kincaid for years like any time actually it's really interesting um, you know the same day that uh, this fight almost broke out a few days ago uh, on the Senate floor uh, Kevin McCarthy was accused of and he was confirmed of elbowing his a political opponent in the kidney you know like <laughs> actual physical violence and that's and that's exactly what happened Kincaid um, 
Uh, he, he, Tolby, you know, stepped on Kincaid's foot. He would punch him, shove him into walls, like elbow him. Like he was just like physically a bully and harassed this journalist for, you know, ending his career. And one day, Charles Kincaid had had enough. And he went to, after one assault from, um, from the congressman, he came to the floors of, con- for the, to the steps of Congress and shot him in the head. Wow. <laughs> and I... he was, he was, uh, he was acquitted in fact, because everyone knew so widely of, of, um, the congressperson's like tyrannical bullying, um, uh, treatment of this, of this, uh, of this poor journalist. And the, the moral of that story is that civilization is fragile. Democracy is fragile. Peaceful coexistence between our fellow citizens is fragile. It's not a foregone conclusion. And, you know, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he wrote in his Gulag Archipelago that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart, but the line between civilization and barbarism of peaceful coexistence and, um, and war and violence and conflict, that goes through every human heart as well. And we underappreciate the role we each have in preserving peace and prosperity in our society today. So I did not know that story about someone actually getting murdered on the steps. I was told that this problem all started with uh, President Trump and that that's where oh, things you were? really... Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's what I had heard. And so you're saying, has this been a problem before 2016? <laughs> This is absolutely a core argument of my book, that this is not an America problem. This is not a now now problem, not a modernity problem. This is certainly not a Donald Trump problem. There's no question he, you know, coarsened our public discourse and certainly didn't help. Um, But this is a timeless human problem. This is a problem of the human condition. As long as we've been around as a species, we've been doggedly social. We yearn for relationship. We want to be in community with others. And yet morally and biologically, we're driven to meet our own needs before others. And that is why this thing called life together, civilization, democracy, friendship is always fragile. Again, never a foregone conclusion. And it lives and dies on our daily decisions, minute by minute decisions to overcome the self-love in our nature, to not let our baser instincts win out in, in, a, in a given moment, a given exchange. And for the, for the sake of peace and harmony and, and, and a thriving human social project. So it might seem to some of us like things are are getting worse than they've ever been. Although when you think about it in historical context, it's not like anyone's challenging someone to a duel or anything. So maybe things are better. Do you think things have gotten worse recently or is it just more out there in the open with social media and the news and all that? This is a timeless problem of time, a problem of, again, of the human condition. But there are epiphenomena. There are new things about our life today that have contributed to this problem and and have made it feel particularly acute and are in fact new challenges. For example, the ubiquity of the 24-7 news cycle, the fact that we are geographically and digitally siloed. We don't actually have to interact with people we don't want to interact with if we don't want to. Um, Social media that allows people to, I mean, Churchill had this great line 70 years ago. He said, the truth gets halfway around the, or that a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. And that was 70 years ago, but before <laughs> the age of social media. And that's all the more the case now, where one person's mistruth, one person's vitriol can now affect millions in seconds. That is novel. That is new. That, that the, um, the, the, the core problem in our nature, the social and the selfish, that, that's a timeless problem. But now that the, the baser parts of ourselves, of the human condition can now reach, have, are, are amplified because of these novel technologies. But you'll, you'll be interested to know 
as I surveyed this question and this this genre of civility manuals, ethical handbooks from across history and culture, it's funny that every single society tends to feel like they're living in the most uncivil moment. <laughs> so this is not a new phenomenon. It tends to be a part of the human condition to complain about kids these days, to complain about corrupt politicians, that this is not a new phenomenon. So what I wonder is, uh, how is, you know, I, this is a libertarian podcast and we talk about things that are going wrong uh, every single day and we talk about how high the stakes are and I, I I wonder if it's possible to be civil with people and have civil discourse when we also have the political rhetoric that is out there maybe we uh, help with some of that but when the stakes are uh, so high for people when bad economics can kill people or when wars can kill people and then also we have to turn around and you know, try to be nice to people at the same time that you think are doing terrible things like how do we work that out well, two things. One, I argue in my book that there's an essential distinction between civility and politeness. So I learned this firsthand when I was in government. I, I, when I got to government, I saw these two extremes. On one hand, there were people who were bullies, who were hostile, aggressive, abrasive. They were willing to, they had sharp elbows. They were willing to step on anyone to get ahead. On the other hand, there were people who I thought were my people. They were polished and poised and polite. But I learned that these were the people who would smile at me one moment and then stab me in the back the next. And that clarified for me this essential distinction between civility and politeness. That politeness is manners, it's etiquette, it's external, it's behavior, it's a technique. Whereas civility is a disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as our moral equals who are worthy of a bare minimum of respect just by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community. And that crucially, Sometimes civility, actually respecting someone, requires being impolite. It requires breaking the rules of propriety and etiquette, telling hard truths, engaging in robust debate, even protesting. I, I, I recover the, the um, whole tradition of civil disobedience in my definition of civility, that sometimes it's a duty of citizenship to stand up against unjust laws that degrade equal treatment under the law, personhood, and human dignity. These core ideas of the classical liberal project, of the American democratic project. And I reclaim, you know, Thoreau, Gandhi, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and so a, a, as part of this tradition to help clarify uh, and to make the case that we may, need less you know, tone policing, less less etiquette and niceness in society right now, and more true civility, more willingness to, to, to offend people in the name of telling a hard truth that's actually respecting someone, not patronizing them by paper, papering over a difference and pretending a difference doesn't exist. That's not actually respecting someone. That can be really difficult when the truth seems to be very subjective for some people sometimes. So you could say, I'm being civil by telling telling the truth and by debating you on this, but they could say, well, that's not the truth. What I think is true is the truth. And I'm being civil by uh, by actually telling you what the truth is right now. So that all, that all seems to get really difficult. And what I find really hard is, it. let's say I decide to uh, treat everyone uh, completely civil and honor their opinions and do all that, which I try to do. It's tough to do when you feel like you're the only one doing it and there's no reciprocal nature, right? It's a great question, and it's a variation on this timeless question of philosophy. Like, how can you be a good, a good person in an unjust world? 
and a world full of bad people. And we hear this rhetoric a lot today that, you know, nice guys finish last and, and, and the stakes are too high to be nice and decent to the other side. The other side is too bad, too wrong, too morally evil to respect or be, or be decent to. And the stakes are so high, we, we have to be willing to take the gloves off and be willing to do and say anything to get ahead. And unfortunately, a symptom of this apocalyptic rhetoric that we see across the political spectrum is the tendency to dehumanize the other. This is a tendency that we do as human beings when the stakes feel high in times of election, in times of war, when it feels like there's an existential threat where our, our identity, our, our, our way of life is, is at stake. We, we feel a tendency to dehumanize the other so that we, we feel justified uh, in doing whatever is necessary in order to win. And that's that's a problem for, for democracy and, 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 and for a free and flourishing society that is founded on basic human dignity and, and equality under the law. We can't be willing to um, suspend the rules of decency uh, for, for, for the sake of a, of a greater good. I mean, the if there's ever a time to suspend, you know, civility and respect for dignity, you know, it, it would have been in the fight against slavery uh, and the fight against segregation. And even some of the most prominent abolitionists knew that they could not suspend respect for personhood in, in the name of a greater good of equality for all. That, that in doing so, they would be undermining the exact ideals that they were fighting for. They couldn't say we're fighting for equality of all persons while undermining the dignity of some people along the way. And so, Dr. King, um, in his and his that, that was that was central to, to Dr. King's philosophy. Um, Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, uh, they knew that um, they had to they had to respect the dignity of all persons on the way to pursuing equality for all. So, would you would you give that same explanation to someone who would say straight to your face, Trump is Hitler, and if we don't stop him, then we're going to have Hitler? And you know how bad that was. You know how how receptive to this message do you think some people are going to be? I'm really sympathetic to people who say that when we analogize modern leaders to Hitler, like we diminish the evil that Hitler, yeah. <laughs> that Hitler committed, yeah. you know, like it, it really cheapens the mass murder and atrocities that, and, and the, the 6 million Jews and the 12 million people that were annihilated under the Third Reich when we analogize modern leaders that day. That's, I think that's really a monstrous tendency. But I think, you know, that, that, that tendency and that temptation to do that is a symptom of just how apocalyptic and, and how high stakes our, our current moment has, has come to feel. One thing I will say is that people insufficiently appreciate that when we are willing to take the gloves off and do anything in order to beat the other side, you know, own the lips, whatever it is, that we underappreciate that we don't just hurt the other, we hurt ourselves too. Dr. King is great on this. He was getting this from Socrates. Socrates said that virtue is its own reward. Being good, gracious, generous, just, that's health of the soul and that it's, that's its own reward. Vice, a vicious soul, uh, uh, and the symptoms of a vicious soul are viciousness towards others. That it's, that's its own punishment and that people who are vicious and cruel and malicious and unjust, they don't deserve our vitriol. They don't deserve our disdain. They deserve our compassion because they're clearly sick and they're clearly suffering, whether or not they acknowledge it. And Dr. King uh, borrowed this idea from Socrates in his letter from Birmingham jail when he talked about segregation. He said that segregation doesn't just hurt the segregated. It hurts the segregator as well. It deforms their soul, he says. And this is actually where I get my the title of my book, The Soul of Civility. It deforms their soul by inflating their, their sense of self. 
they, they have an inaccurate sense of the other by thinking that um, the other is is inferior to them, and they have an inferior, an inaccurate sense of self because they think that they're better than others, and it deforms their soul. And so just as segregation hurts both parties, so does incivility. When we're cruel to another human being, we obviously hurt the other human being, but we also deform our own souls too. And just as incivility is mutually harmful, acts of charity, grace, kindness, compassion, hospitality, especially important as we get into the holidays, that is mutually ennobling. It's mutually uh, beneficial and it's mutually beautiful. It cultivates the humanity and humaneness of, of both parties. And so where does this where does this need to start? Does it need to start uh, with people in the government or people in the media, or does it need to start in the in society itself, in the population, and then filter up into those positions? A defining attribute of our current moment is our tendency to blame. You know, if we're if we're blaming someone else, we're not responsible. We're not culpable. We feel we feel justified. We feel it inflates our our sense of self righteousness. And yet, you know, I my theory of social change in the book is hyper-individual, micro-local level. I didn't write this book for, for public leaders, for the intelligentsia. I hope they read it. So anyone listening to this, feel free to send a copy to, to your local public servant. I wrote it for everyday Americans who are exhausted and frustrated by the division in our world right now and desperately want to be a part of the solution. Okay. When I left a hostile... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Keep going. <laughs> when I left our a hostile environment in, in government... I call myself a refugee from federal government. I, I came home from work one day and said to my husband, I'm done with DC, I'm done with government, like let's move to Indiana. And Indiana is him, his home state where he's from originally. And my husband said, okay, great, sounds good. No take backs. <laughs> so we moved there a few months later and we've been there five and a half years. Uh, one of my first friends when we moved to Indianapolis, her name was Joanna Taft. She came up to me one day and said, hi, I'm Joanna, would you like to porch with us sometime? And I never heard the word porch used as a verb before but I was curious we didn't know any people in town so we went to her porch that day and I realized that Joanna is staging this quiet porching revolution from her great big friend Veranda she had curated people across race across politics uh, across um social class, geography in town, not to have a curated you know structured conversation about differences but just to inhabit a shared space and, and to sow seeds of trust and friendship that might one day provide a fertile ground for productive conversation across difference. But that is one challenge of our moment right now. There is no basic affection. There is no, there is no respect or trust. And that's why we're not doing dialogue or life together across difference well at all. And that's what's so beautiful and revolutionary about Joanna's front porch, that she's creating this little oasis, this place where people can feel seen and known and loved and not essentialized and reduced to one aspect of who they are, who they vote for, what their skin color is. And Joanna also is reclaiming her civic sphere. She's saying, I can't control what journalists are writing about and, and what politician is tweeting what or who's elbowing who in the kidney, you know? Like, <laughs> I am going to focus on what I can control. And I'm going to make my community better and stronger. And, and that's exactly what she's doing. And when, when I was a Novak journalism fellow, I reported on this phenomenon across the country that people with and without front porches are reclaiming their civic sphere. And they're saying, I can't control what's happening around me, but I can control myself. And I'm going to be part of the solution right from what, right where I am. And we have way more power than we realize as Americans. This is a core message from my book, that, that the beauty of a democracy is that the citizen is prior to the regime. 
And that if we want change, we can be changed and demand change from what, right where we are. And there's power in that. We have way more power as, um, as everyday citizens than we realize to be part of this solution. It's way too complex um, and way too intractable. No single, pol- single politician, no, um, no technology has caused it. Right. This is a timeless human problem. No, no policy, no politician, no single book is enough to solve this issue as well, that it has to be organic and spontaneous and voluntary. It can't be micromanaged. It can't be legislated. It has to be uh, organic, spontaneous, voluntary from every one of us, at the local level to be a part of the solution. Well, tell your friend Joanna she needs to write a book on porching because that might be the revolution that we need. I, I wrote that book. That's my book. Oh, there you okay. go. Okay. All right. You got the porching book. All right, Alexandra, thank you so much for your time. I want to let you get back on the road on that book tour. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.